Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields relating to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some of the important issues of our times. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today in this bonus podcast, we have the October 2017 Seed Chat with our expert Bill McDorman, sharing wisdom, thoughts, and concerns that might occupy the thoughts of those of us who are saving seeds. Welcome to the show today, Bill. Good evening, Greg. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. And always great to chat with you, my man. Always great. So we do these seed chats once a month. You can always send us your questions at questions at urbanfarm.org. Also on the main screen that you're looking at on the right there next to the slides, you can send us your questions and I will intercept them and throw them out to Bill as we go along. So please send over your questions and let's get started, Bill. How are you today? Well, I'm doing well, Greg. It's just been beautiful weather and, you know, the more I get away from the real world and get into my <laughs> garden, I think the better I feel, although I, I didn't get much out there today. Yeah. But it's nice. I'm getting ready to plant for the winter and it just feels good. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, we've, we're in process of uh, planting for the winter down here in Phoenix, so yay. Wow. Yeah. It's nice being able to garden year-round, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, it really is. Here in, in the Phoenix, the low desert, in the Phoenix metropolitan area, we do we grow all year round. In fact, the hardest time to grow is July, August, and September. So. Well, you remember uh, what Elliot Coleman said, don't you? Please he remind us. Every, he said, every farmer, respectable farmer, should be able to take the summer off. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And. And that's what that was his impetus to become a winter gardener in Maine. Oh. And he came out with that really great book called The Four Season Harvest mm-hmm. about how he figured out how to do that with cold frames and hoop houses. Yeah. And so and that way he didn't have any competition. Oh, there you go. Well, and we could always, 
you know, if you're in a winter area like that, you could always spend the summer in Australia, which is the winter there. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> there, there you go. Moving around a little bit. Turn the, turn the seasons on their head. Yeah. So oh. seed chat tonight. What are we talking about? Let's just touch base in on Seed School Online and Seed School and your Seed School teacher training. Kind of give me an update on that. Well, it's going really well. What we have learned is that there is a huge demand out there for people who want to learn how to teach seed saving. Oh, yes. And so we just had a very successful seed school teacher training in Denver, Colorado, at the Posner Center, and we had 26 students. Wow. It was incredible. People all over the country are starting to step up and realize not only how important it is, but how important it is to get more people involved. Yeah. And so people want to really just kind of catch up on what we've learned about how to do that. I think we've done over 40 seed school programs now, and every time we do an evaluation afterwards, we take feedback. Mm -hmm. And so we try to make each you know successive course better. I mean, that's what we learned to do in permaculture, right? Yeah. Reevaluate, reevaluate, reevaluate. And so after 40 courses, we're getting there. You know, we still have more to learn and we still listen and we learned at this course. And so it's really become apparent that we need more of these train the trainer programs. And so we're going to actually do another one at the Posner Center in Denver again in April. And so people can start signing up for that if you're interested at all. And I think maybe the best thing that happens at those courses, at least this is what I've observed at this last one, was just the high level of people, the depth of experience around seeds and seed saving, Mm -hmm. and then the organizational level. We had, as I was saying to you earlier, three county extension agents. Wow. Five or six executive directors from other nonprofits that mm-hmm. want to now incorporate, you know, seed saving and seed saving education into their nonprofits. And so these guys are ready to go. It's almost like um, get out of the way, you know, yeah. <laughs> when you get to course. There was such an energy created among all of them, you know, to look good in front of their peers, so to speak, mm-hmm. that it created a week of intense and incredible presentations. Time after time, very creative. And so the whole experience left us all, I think, just awestruck. You know, I think I'm still buzzing from the experience. I've never been in a circle of people like that. And so that's what's happening, you know, from a seed teaching point of view is I think as society figures out that it needs this more and more, the institutions that have been involved in it, you know, are upping the ante and things are starting to happen on a level I've never seen. So it's just been exciting. Also, you know, we're doing, we're being called to do more seed schools in a day. You know, we've got even a grain school in a day coming up in Norwood, Colorado. I think mm-hmm. that's November 9th. What's that? 4th. November 4th. Thank you. Mm-hmm. We've got seed school in a day coming up at Arco Sante. And I think you're doing a podcast about that, aren't you? Yeah, we've got Sean Jean Paul on on our podcast this Saturday, uh, talking about Arcosante and what's happened at Arcosante and the conference that's coming up. And he mentioned you guys in Seed School in a day, so on and so on. So yeah, convergence they're calling it, and they're bringing mm-hmm. in people from all over. There'll be music and high-minded, idealistic people. I think is what Sean Paul described it to me. And then they ask us to do a Seed School in a day as a sort of a prequel to the whole mm-hmm. festival. So, And then the dates for that are November 10, 11, and 12. Yeah, perfect. And that, yeah, that's right. And seed the Seed School, school in, a day. in a Day is on, is on November 9th. Perfect. Yeah. 
Perfect. So that's, you know, those are the things. We've got grain school coming up in January again. I think that's uh-huh. the 11th and 12th at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. That's becoming a national event. We're going to have some of the most well-known people involved in alternative and heritage grains and local grain production there mm-hmm. this year. And so that's going to be really exciting. So that's sums up at least the next couple of months <laughs> in the seed school world. Excellent. And so, yeah, yeah, they're excellent. keeping us busy. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So when we talked earlier today, you said something about a new seed conversation that you wanted to kind of delve into tonight. You know, as much as possible, let's answer questions. Let's see what people have out there. But I always like to start off, you know, maybe stimulating a new conversation a little bit. Another a way to slice through all of this material. I don't know why after about 38 years of dealing with the same material, I keep waking up looking at things differently <laughs> yeah. some days. And so I woke up morning before last thinking about Fukuoka's timeless classic, The One Straw Revolution. Revolution, yep. And and just how powerful a book that was in questioning a lot of our modern agricultural assumptions about how we need to be involved in growing food. He was basically a hands-off you know, agriculturist. He let things seed where they wanted to seed. Right. And he he tended his garden more like he would a wild forest or a food forest. Mm-hmm. And actually had some great results as far as yields at some point because things were adapting themselves to where they were. Uh-huh. And so on. And so I highly recommend the book if you haven't read it, The One Straw Revolution. And so I woke up thinking about the one seed revolution. And that happened because I was thinking about several things that have crossed my path in the last couple of years. One is a quote by Gus Beth, and he's a scientist. And actually, a quote of his was going around the internet a while back, and I latched onto it because it was really interesting to me, especially in light of all the discussions going on with science mm-hmm. and about science these days. So anyway, his quote is, we scientists don't know how to do that. He says, I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, that about sums it up, you know. And he said, I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address those problems. Obviously, when he was a young man, this is what he got into. He said, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with those, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. Yeah. And I thought, wow, what an incredible sort of enlightening confession, <laughs> you know, for a scientist who's in a sense throwing up his hands. It's just all of those problems have gotten worse over the last 30 years, even though science, you know, the science behind them has gotten way better yeah. at measuring all of them. And so I thought, wow, how do we do that then? That becomes the problem. How do we do that? How do we do a spiritual and cultural transformation? You know, open question, Greg Peterson. What do you think? You know, for me, it really becomes a a choice. You know, I've said this for years that people change. Well, I had an epiphany about this on Sunday, but that people change 99% of the time because they get hit by a Mack truck, metaphorically. So they get sick, cancer shows up, they get in an accident, you know, and, and Mack trucks can be, you know, a piece of balsa wood or literally a Mack truck. Right. And then 1% of the time they choose to change. So really it's a, it's an awakening. And what I, what happened on Sunday for me is I was listening to a lecture on Sunday and the the woman that was talking said fear and pain pushes 
vision pulls. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, so, and, that's good. and so both of those, making a choice to change and having a vision around that change and having that change, that vision pull us forward, that's a really important piece of this this pie. And I think until we have visions for ourselves that mm-hmm. pull us forward, mm-hmm. that we don't always necessarily change. And you know, so in 1991, this is 26 years ago, I did a landmark education course called the Advanced Course. And I created myself to be the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. You're not, not taking on too big of a responsibility well, there, are you? <laughs> well, no. And that was before I heard the West Jackson quote. The West Jackson yeah. quote says, if what you're planning in life, and I'm paraphrasing here, if what you're planning yeah. in life is accomplishable in your lifetime, you're not planning big enough. Right. So who knows if I'm ever going to get to the transformation of the food system, but guess what? It pulls me out of bed every morning and I get to do this every single day. Whether it's this morning, I got up at six o'clock and I spent four hours in the yard and we, you know, we're prepping some beds for gardens and, you know, so on and so on. Then I came in and I sat in front of the dang computer all day, editing, editing podcasts, getting content ready, working on processes around teaching people, you know, like this stuff tonight. So I contend that my vision pulls me forward every day. That's right. It's pulling me forward every day. And so I consciously have, am choosing to move forward every day. I'm conscious, consciously awakening. You know, that's really my wow. take on it. And, you know, one of the big things for me happened about five or six years ago when you came up with that Wes Jackson quote. Yeah. It's like, oh, that it's okay not to actually make it to the goal, right? In fact, it's a more powerful goal now. Right. Thinking, you know, then your exactly. life is going to be. Exactly. Plus then yeah. other people buy into it. You know, the 10,000 right. urban farms thing, when I created that five or six or seven years ago, you know, it's like 10,000 urban farms in Phoenix. Well, we'll see, but I'll bet you if we count yeah, them all well, up we, now. We, everybody who knew Phoenix did call you crazy. It's like, that's insane. How many <laughs> yeah. at the time were there? A handful? Oh, literally a handful. Now there's thousands and they're yeah. small. My friend, yeah. my friend Melanie's got two fat cats, apartment garden. But what it's doing is when you name your farm, you're transforming your your beingness from a gardener, which is a hobby, to a farmer, which is a avocation. It's, it's a profession. Yeah. It's something to do. So you are changing the level of engagement in yourself yeah. when you name your farm, yeah. number one. Plus, by naming your farm, if your farm has a name and you share it with people, people will look at you like, huh, what's that about? Tell me more about that. So you're actually building the local food conversation yeah. by doing that. Wow. So, so thousands of urban farms because of the idea that we take it seriously enough and recognize how powerful it is just to name them. Yeah. Just to name it. Just part of that vision building. Exactly. That's great. Exactly. But how many times have your podcast been downloaded now? That's the other, you know, astounding. Yeah, over 820,000 or something crazy like that in two years, in two years. Right, but that's a hockey stick thing too, right? Right. It's going up faster now than it ever has. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So I just want to remind everybody, I see there's a bunch of people on the call. Welcome, everybody. I see John from Ketchum. We know John and Lori from Beverly Hills and a bunch of people on the webcast, which I don't know their names, but I want to just throw it out there. We can take questions from you. You can send us questions at questions at urbanfarm.org or on the right of your screen, there's a place, there should be a place for you to add your questions in for Bill. So please shoot us your questions. Yeah, as specific as you want them. I mean, all great gardening answers are specific to what you're doing. Yeah. yeah <laughs> well, you know, exactly. so I was thinking about the spiritual and cultural transformation part. 
And that's where I woke up with this idea about the one seed revolution. And what got me to thinking about one seed was a story that was published in Smithsonian Magazine, January 28, 2013. And it's on their web, the Smithsonian Institution's website, and you can mm -hmm. go there and find it if you want to read up more about it. But it's the astounding story of the Lykovs, which were an old believers sect, a spinoff from the Russian Orthodox Church. And in 1936, they were being persecuted. In fact, this father that took his family out into the Siberian outback carp, his brother had just been shot by the Bolsheviks. And so he mm -hmm. said, hey, it's time to get out of here. So he took his his wife and his child and they left and they ended up 160 miles out into the taiga into the Siberian wilderness and built a cabin and survived the first winter they took a spinning wheel and a pot and a few other things whatever they could carry mm -hmm. and they ended up living there for 50 years undisturbed Wow. In fact, when they were discovered by geologists in the 60s, late 1968, so it was 1936 to 1968, however long that is, they didn't even know that there had been a World War II. You know? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Which is just an incredible thing. But the best part of the story for me, or the part that caught my eye, I'm just going to read you a paragraph from the Smithsonian. Cool. Because it, it was hard for them to live out there. Mm -hmm. And they said famine was an ever-present danger in these circumstances. And in 1961, it snowed in June. The hard frost killed everything growing in their garden. And by spring, the family had been reduced to eating shoes and bark. Wow. Akulina, the mother, chose to see her children fed. And that year, she died of starvation. Mm -hmm. She refused food so her children could eat. And so Carp soldiered on with his three children. The rest of the family were saved by what they regarded as a miracle, a single grain of rye sprouted in their pea patch. The Lykovs put a fence around the chute and guarded it zealously at night and day to keep off mice and squirrels. At harvest time, the solitary spike yielded 18 grains. They painstakingly rebuilt their rye crop. When they were discovered by geologists who were flying over the area looking for minerals, they could see these fields that were planted with rye, and that was their major grain, and that's how they survived all the rest of those years. And so think about what one seed <laughs> can do. Yeah. I think that's historic and an incredible example as I've ever heard. And so that's the kind of spiritual and cultural transformation I think we need. People mm -hmm. are afraid and they're selfish and they're fearful, as Gus was talking about. They're greedy. I think even apathy comes from the fact that people aren't around a system like seeds, which yeah. is exponentially productive. That is yeah. so hopeful every time you do it. And so that, for me, is one of the ways we can start to work on what Gus never figured out, is get people back involved. I really think it's that simple, involved in this ritual of seed saving. And I think it will ultimately result in the kind of cultural and spiritual transformation that he was talking about. If yeah. nothing else, people... We understand their own environment better. They'll understand the weather cycles on a larger scale. You know, it just pulls you into all the things we should probably be paying attention to as humans right now in the early 21st century. And so that's what I wanted to throw out to you is the one yeah. seed revolution. <laughs> Never nice. give up on well, so I have a couple things about that. First of all, I've been sharing a lot the past year or so this concept because I've figured out that there's only one place on the planet, and this goes to the exponential growth of seeds. There's only one place on the planet where this notion of lack, L-A-C-K, lives. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's between yeah. our ears because when I look at the absolute incredible abundance that happens in nature, it just blows me away. 
you know, the amount of fruit that I get off of my trees. And I, I want you to tell the Sonoran white wheat story. If you want to follow up the one seed revolution is that, you know, th this isn't just about handfuls of seeds and gardeners being cute, right? This right. is about real food. And so, yeah, while at Native Seed Search, we saw a couple of handfuls of white Sonoran wheat, which was heritage variety that had been brought to Arizona for almost 400 years earlier and almost completely disappeared. Uh -huh. down to just a few handfuls that we could find that Dr. Gary Nabin found and were in the Native Seed Search collection. Before we left, after three years, Elle and I, I inquired and there were 1,100 acres of it being grown. And I don't know what the acreage is today, but there's at least a couple of professional farms that oh, yeah. are growing it and selling it worldwide here's, now at BKW Farms yep. north of Tucson. and Pinnacle uh, Farms uh, here in Phoenix. Right. Hayden Mills, you know, yep. is contracting. A couple of farmers. Steve Sossman, I think, is one of them. And so yeah. it's just one of those stories, you know. I like to think about the Adobe Mill, Dove Creek, Colorado, found, yeah. you know, beans or got their hands on some beans that have been found in a clay jar from the Anasazi. And now they're selling over a million pounds of those a year because wow. they're such great dry beans. And so, yeah. or the story of the soldier that came back from World War II with 32 grains of this triple-sized wheat that he saw in Egypt mm -hmm. to Montana. And now, last I looked, there was like 180,000 acres of kamut, you know, being grown in wow. Montana that all came out of 32 grains. And so, <laughs> you know, as we start to rediscover just how powerful these systems are mm -hmm. and start to adapt them to our own lives and our own needs again, wow, I, I agree. You know, there's no lack. There's no need for selfishness, greed, or apathy. There's lots to do, and there's enough to go around. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, I got a couple of questions for you here. So okay. just I want to remind everybody that they can, on the right side of your screen there, you can put your questions for Bill. Jessica from La Paz, Mexico is listening in. She says, hello, Bill. I have a question about harvesting fruits and leaves from plants that you are saving seeds from. Some people say you want to harvest minimally. Some say not at all. Some say it doesn't matter. Do you have an opinion on this and why would harvesting from the plant affect the seeds? So I'm thinking what she's asking is, is that for the seeds, the ones you're going to harvest seeds off of, you don't harvest anything off of them. You let them, you grow them for seed only. Yeah. You know, so part of this problem comes from what I call the scale problem. If you want to produce the best seed that has the most vitality, that will germinate best, that will produce the best crops, mm -hmm. yes, you know, produce the best seed. That should be your product, and you should allow the plant to put every bit of its energy into doing that. Ah. Is that necessary? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe if you're a large industrial farmer mm -hmm. and you're planting, that's how you want the seed that you're planting to have been produced because it can make a huge difference on a scale that you can measure. But if you're just a backyard gardener and you're just saving seeds for your own use, the genetics will all still be there. You could maybe skip a season or two. You could just pull the lettuce leaves off, say, your lettuce as it starts to bolt because you love to eat salad or whatever. And so, yeah, you're taking some energy away from the plant, but you'll still get lettuce seeds and you'll plant those and they'll still grow. Yeah. And maybe then you raise it for seed, second mm -hmm. year or third year. And so you just you have to be a little bit careful about these kinds of rules that have come down. So many of them have been handed to us because we grew up in a larger scale industrial system. And those are rules from that system 
system. Right. So you can be, as I like to say, and you know this, Greg, about me, I like to be playful a bit, you know, and who's the seed cops are not going to come and bust you and say, <laughs> oh, you didn't do it right, yeah. you know, and in your own garden on a small scale, you're going to have a hard time telling the difference, you know, you really are, even if you abuse your plants sometimes. And maybe that's what you want to do. Maybe you want to eat, you know, really abuse them and only save seeds from the really abused plants, the ones mm-hmm. that finally make seeds even after they've been abused because then you're selecting for that. So, you know, there's lots of different ways you can go with this. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Candace says, I'm having a hard time judging the seasons now with the weather changes that we're seeing and definitely seeing weather changes. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine in Southern California in the Oceanside area is growing coffee there. Apparently they've, you know, they can now grow wow. coffee. It's it's warm enough to to grow coffee there. So she says, yeah, well, you know, we're seeing it here. In fact, I just saw an NPR article recently. Let's see, Candace is in Phoenix. I'm in Phoenix as well, Candace. I just saw an NPR article this past week that talks about how we're going to have a record warm winter, which makes three in a row for us here in you know, in Arizona, because we haven't had a freeze the last two winters. And that's a problem when it comes to, you know, bugs, because when it freezes, oh, yeah. bugs die. So she well, says and it I, affects your fruit, fruit trees at some point, doesn't it? Yeah, it probably will a little bit, you know, on the higher chill fruit trees. Mm-hmm. So her her question is, I live in the North Valley in Phoenix and was wondering when you plant for winter, then again for spring. She says it's October and still really warm. So we actually got some broccoli starts at a nursery here about two weeks ago, Candace, and planted them here in the front yard of the urban farm. And they've already gone to seed. It's called bolting, and that's because they're too it's too warm here. So, oh, my God. Yeah. So really what there is to do, Candace, is to start experimenting. I'm going to send you to, for a low desert planting calendar, you're going to want to go to plantingcalendar.org and download your free planting calendar. You were involved in putting that together, yeah, that's, and that's from the urban farm, right? And it's yeah, for Phoenix, right, or exactly. the whole lower basin down there. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's for the low desert. So, you know, do that for sure, and then you just have to experiment. You know, I, I do have some hardier, and I'm going to actually let you speak to this, Bill, but I've got some hardier broccolis out front that are just doing really great that, you know, are more heat tolerant. So how do we grow seeds for heat tolerance, Bill? Well, that's, you know, my answer to to her question was the same as yours, you know, experiment, but it, not only experiment with times. I mean, I've decided because things are so much warmer here, I'm going to plant corn four months in a row here next year where I am, oh, wow. April, May, June, and July. Because mm-hmm. I don't know what the best month is anymore. Things have changed so much. So through by experimenting over time, but then also try different varieties. This is why we need diversity. Mm-hmm. Try 10 different kinds of broccoli if you could get them, if that's what you want to grow. You know, ask around. Check in the seed library. Maybe somebody's already found one and they write that on the packet of seeds they checked in. You know, you can get a lot of good information at local seed libraries and seed exchanges. Yeah, there's other people trying to figure these problems out. You're not alone, you know, and just experiment both with the times that you plant and with the varieties. And and we're all in this together, right? Isn't this the big experiment that's going to yeah. have to take place planetarily? It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But it, it, yeah, it's ob- observation and, you know, experimenting, get out there and play. You know, the cool thing is, is that there are literally I'm going to go out on a limb here, but hundreds of kinds of brassicas that we can get seeds for and grow. Is that not the case, Bill? Oh, yeah. More than that probably now. Yeah. And where yeah. where where do we get these seeds at? Well, you know, again, start with a local seed exchange. Start with your local seed library. 
Mm-hmm. You know, first is what I always try to do. And then there are a number of seed companies that are actually growing their own seed or know where every seed was grown. And so that's my next level up. When I have to buy them, I like to know where my seeds came from. Yeah. I mean, we're in a, we're in a mm-hmm. globalized system where even uh, certified organic seed contracts now are being done in China. And that just I, doesn't make sense to me. I mean, though, you know, maybe, I don't know. It just, <laughs> there's nothing at our latitude in China anyway. So I know they're going to be different when they come in here. And so I try to find things as close as I can. On the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance website, we have a directory for seed sources and small companies that we trust to mm-hmm. know where things came from. But, you know, beyond that, just bring in as much diversity as you can. You know, you, you're not going to grow something and take really great care of it and follow it through to the end and, and save seed from it unless you really love it. You're really passionate about it. So I always use that as a measure too. When I see something, well, actually, I just bought seeds for palm trees the other day, you know, and my wife, Bell, you know, looked at me and kind of raised her eyebrows or whatever. And I really want to grow a palm tree. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. I'm not sure it makes sense. It's not not part of my food forest. You know, it might, I might have to wait 40 years for it to get very big, mm-hmm. but that's what I want to do. So, yeah. you know, always pay attention to that part also. And have fun. And have fun. Yeah. Have fun, man. Have fun. John from, it just says Sandy, John from Sandy. I'm assuming that's somebody you know, Bill. He says, can you, can you talk about hybrid seeds versus heirloom seeds and what to expect if one is just starting down the rabbit hole of seed saving? <laughs> it ah, is a rabbit that's hole. Great. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> you question. May, you may never get back out. The general, you know, knowledge that's sort of arisen in the last 30 years around seed people, industrial people going back to growing and saving their own seeds is that you don't want to start with hybrids. And in fact, that's morphed into a more didactic statement that you can't save seeds from hybrids. And that's just not true. And I'm starting to question the first part of it, what maybe where we should start is from hybrids. Mm-hmm. So let me explain. It just is more complicated. Generally, when you save seeds from a non-hybrid plant, you can expect to get something that looked like the parents. You know, there's always differences. It's adapting to your particular growing conditions. There could be mm-hmm. hidden things in it that express. There's all sorts of possibilities, but generally it's going to look like it. You could save seeds from a hybrid and plant them and get nothing that looks like what the parents were, especially if you're growing fruited plants like tomatoes or peppers, cucumbers or melons, those sorts of things. And so that's where this sort of urban myth arises is that you can't save seeds from hybrids. Basically, you can if you're willing to invest more than one year. You can probably get back what you had the first year in the hybrid that you originally, say, purchased or somebody Uh gave you. If you just look year after year and only save seeds from things that are close to or exactly like the original thing that you wanted in the first place. Mm-hmm. And the general you know, thinking is that after six or seven or eight years, you can even get to commercial grade seed. You'll probably get a working plant after three or four years, maybe sometimes as early as two years. As Carol Deppe, geneticist who taught at Harvard for 25 years says, you can always eat everything probably anyway. Yeah, right. And if you think about it, you know, it's nice to go back to our open pollinated varieties and the heirlooms and the heritage varieties that have been left for us since largely before World War II. But, you know, humanity's put a tremendous amount of work into creating hybrids, mm-hmm. especially around disease resistance. And those diseases are real. 
early blight and late blight and tomatoes and you, I could go on and on, black stem rot in your cabbage. And so if you start with a hybrid that has that disease resistant, a more modern variety, and just save seeds from the ones that you like, you have a chance to get back. Now, with cabbages, it's a little bit more difficult, but you could probably still get something that will work in your own backyard garden. Right. And so, you know, for me, in the last year or so, I've taken the gloves off and I'm going to plant as many hybrids as I do open pollinated things to save seeds from. And I am on what I, I lovingly call Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And it's all <laughs> going to be fun. And it's all going to be adventurous. And I'm hoping to hit some home runs. You never know. You know, it's like genetic dice. You roll them every time you save seeds. I think it's something that it's going to keep me interested and excited. Yeah. And for that, I think it's a worthy, worthy thing to do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and I, you know, I always tell people that growing food is one great big grand experiment. You just need to get in and experiment and see what's going to work for you. Because we could literally live on the same street and something's going to work great for me and that's not going to work for you and vice versa. Exactly. And whenever you have a disaster, just remember that that's the best thing that happened to you. Yeah. From a oh my God, you've got to have, you've got to have a great <laughs> story about that. I know you've told several. Well, you know, I've had several times. It took me a long time to really climb on top of it emotionally though. I mean, it's really devastating when something happens in your garden, whether it's a vermin that takes it out or there it's a disease or there's bugs or whatever. But mm -hmm. what I've learned now is that if anything survives at all and you save seeds from it, that's what you want. You've got a new genetic yeah. that's resistant to whatever got you. Always turn around, you know, in your own head. And so once you do that and you emotionally stabilize yourself so that even disasters are great, then you can save seeds from hybrids. You can save seeds from open pollinate varieties. You can, I just walked out and harvested some of my corn and I was growing chapalote, mm -hmm. which is a historic, it was probably the first corn found growing in what we call the United States 4,000 years ago. I mean, it's this ancient corn, but it's beautiful. It's root beer colored and I'm so looking forward, you know, to growing it. And I hope the first year I opened up was totally contaminated with colors. You know, there's reds and greens and blues and dark browns and yellows. And it's like, what happened to the chapalote? Well, it turns out that we had a bed of Carol Depe's Magic Mana, which is a colored corn that's been selected from Painted Mountain for flavor. Uh -huh. And it's got every color in the rainbow. And it must have, on a weird day, even though it was a month later and there shouldn't have been any pollen on the Magic Mana, it somehow got into my chapalote. Mm -hmm. And so if you're growing chapalote and you're trying to keep it pure, that's a pure disaster. But if you switch your thinking around a little bit, I just invented Depe Lote, I call it. I named it after Carol Depe. It's a cross between her, her flavor corn and this 4,000-year-old corn. And it's absolutely beautiful in its own right. I would never have thought of doing that. I didn't even think they could cross because of the times I planted them. So that's just an example of, you know, how you have to roll with the punches. And maybe, you know, it's better. And, and lots of times it is, I guess. Cool, 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 cool. So let's see here. Oh, John says Sandy, Utah. John is from Sandy, Utah. Thanks for listening in. Yeah, one of my dearest teachers when I was um, studying herbalism for about 20 years, Neva Jensen, was from Sandy, Utah. She had a shop there. Well, perfect. Well, guys, if you want to get us some questions, shoot them over to us. Any kind of concluding thoughts there, Bill? Well, let me think here a little bit. We're always changing, aren't we, Greg, in yeah. how we tell our stories? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's been on my mind a lot. You know, after you got started how many years ago? 
Well, you, I was just thinking when you were doing your Saturday free walks at the urban farm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, well, there, there is that, but I actually planted my first garden here in the valley 42 years ago. But Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that was in 2001 when I started calling the urban farm the urban farm and inviting people to come and take tours here of the urban farm. And there were Saturdays. I used to do them the first Saturday of about eight months a year. I used to take the summers off and December off. And there were Saturdays when nobody would show up. <laughs> and I Or would... one person. Right. One, yeah, yeah one exactly. So then I, you know, I'd pack up the tent and I'd continue doing it. In fact, I have sitting right here on the front cover of the North Scottsdale Times. It's got me sitting in my front yard. I've got corn growing in back of me. And the cover said the green says the green extreme. Once kooky tree huggers are now green gurus. But would you want one for your neighbor? And this was in 2007. So this is just a mere 10 years ago. They were still poking fun at us. Oh, my gosh. Well, now they're green real estate agents, aren't they? Yeah. They only de deal in green properties. Yep. Yeah. So, I was just looking at the Kindle bestseller list, Amazon. And if you search for the best-selling right now on Kindle, nonfiction book. Mm -hmm. It's about diet oh. and, and how we need to eat good food, basically. Yeah. You know, fresh, local, mostly vegetables, all this kind of, you know, foo-foo stuff that we were once ridiculed for is now the bestseller on the nonfiction list. I just yeah. thought that was really interesting. I think the changes are, are really starting to kick in and come. And yeah. so you went from, and I'll, I'll say this for any of you out there that want to be a teacher or you feel alone in what you're doing and, and people around you don't understand you know, think about Greg Peterson opening up his heart and his yard to teach about what he was learning and having no one show up to the point now where he's got 800,000 downloads of his podcasts. Yeah. You know, that's what's happening. I real that's an, an indication of what's happening and it's going to happen even more. Yeah. You know, it'll be 8 yeah. million someday. Greg. <laughs> I really believe that's where we're going. So it's right. going to be really exciting. We'll take it. We will take it. So Candace says, I was told to store my seeds in the freezer. Is this accurate? Well, you can. Generally, it's thought that the cooler you keep them, the longer they'll last. Those are principles that are operated upon, especially by our larger institutions like the National Seed Storage Lab, mm -hmm. which actually stores seeds in liquid nitrogen at 400 degrees below zero, as well as refrigerators and freezers. And so that has not been tested, though, for 100 years. I mean, we just started doing this in our institutions a few decades ago. And so yeah. we do know seeds in clay pots have lasted for hundreds of years, if not thousands. Yeah. You know, so we do know that that's a good seed storage way. If you do store seeds in a freezer, put them in something that moisture can't get through. Regular freezer bags aren't enough. Yeah. You, you want to put them in a glass jar or a thicker, you know, moisture impermeable container of some kind. And then the number one thing to remember is that when you take your seeds back out of the freezer, let them sit for an hour or two at room temperature before you open up the jar. Yeah. If you don't, warm, moist air will go into this ice-cold container and condense on the insides, and immediately your seeds are wet. And you not only want to keep them cool, if not cold, keep them dark and dry. And right. so that gets rid of the dry parts. And then I'll just say one other thing, because this is a big myth about storing seeds, is do not vacuum pack them. 
Oh, my seeds God, are, no. Yeah, seeds are living embryos. They need to breathe. They don't need a lot of air. And so if you just seal up a packet or a can or a jar, there'll be enough air in there. But you don't want to suck all that air out of them. You know, that's a mistake that some modern the preppers have run into. Mm. They're vacuum sealing all their food, and they thought it was good for their seeds. So. Yeah, because that'll kill them. Yeah. That'll you know, them. I'll bet there's some that survive. <laughs> right. there's wily things, you know, but still, yeah, yeah it, most of them won't probably. Yeah. yeah. So, Candace, I want to invite you to go to SeedSchoolOnline.com because we go in depth on seed saving. Why don't you tell everybody just a little bit about Seed School Online, Bill? Yeah, you know, that's a really great thing to point out. You know, we put, I was trying to think about all the time and energy. You know, where did Seed School Online come from? You know, we've done, you know, seed schools now. 2010. 2010. Yep. Between 40 and 50 programs. These are live programs. Six-day programs, one-day programs. Done a couple of three-day, you know, we do at our grain schools. All of that information, the best of all of that, has been put into these, into webinars format. We did, thank you, Greg, through the Urban Farm. Yep. We did it several times, and each time we did it, it got better. Yep. And the last time we did it, we recorded it. And so now you can experience it at your leisure. You can anytime download you each each episode anytime you want. And so it really represents, you know, Seed School came out of about almost 30 years of me trying to teach people how to do things, owning my own small seed company and trying right. to teach everybody that bought my seeds how to save them. And so that got condensed into Seed School. And then all those Seed Schools got condensed into Seed School Online. So that's really where it comes from. And there's nothing quite like it. And in the beginning, you know, we didn't know how effective it was going to be or what's going on. But boy, the feedback now has got us convinced. It's really a special thing. I mean, you can learn a lot. We used to say you can get from zero to 60, you know, around seeds. And we need people to get zero to 60 in a real short period of time. We need millions of people to be able to do that somehow. So this is our first attempt at at how to do that and the best one so far. So check out Seed School online if if you want to have a more in-depth experience at this. Well, you know, it kind of... it has some interesting roots. You and Bell and me and Toby Hemingway got together in Prescott. That had to have been, what, 2009? Yeah, that was even before. Yeah, it was even school. before. That's right. Yeah, and then we were looking for a way to put this stuff online. And, you know, then two, fast forward two years later, I actually was in seed school, the residential version of seed school down in Tucson. I came and took it over the 4th of July of 2011. <laughs> and maybe it was in June. It was June of 2011. And I think that's probably where the seeds got planted. Like, oh my gosh, how do we take this content and make it available for everybody? Because going to a residential version of seed school, what's it? Five, six, seven hundred dollars plus travel. Yeah. And the, and the week you're right. there for a week and you're going to spend a week. You know, right. Yeah. And seed school online is $97. Yeah. But so. it, how many years did it take us to be able to do that? You <laughs> yeah, <know>? No kidding. <laughs> Concept execution was a huge, you know, people say, oh, I'm just going to do online webinars and podcasts. Well, it's a lot more work than you think. That's all I can say. And, you know, you've got one, of course, by Toby Hemingway also. Yep. Yeah. I talked to Toby before he got started with that. My advice to him was it's going to take a lot longer than you think to get those lectures ready. It's a huge ask to try to boil down and make lucid all of these thoughts. It's really, it's good training. It oh, yeah. really is, but it, you know, plan on spending a lot more time than you thought if that's one of the courses that you want to take. And we need teachers on all levels for so many things right now as we reattach oh. this society to the planet. You know, there's so many opportunities out there. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I'll just say one last, you know, overall. Perfect. That's yeah. That's where I was big, going next. Please. 
All right. Big concept thing is that just remember, and this is what we've learned, you know, what that we're learning about seeds. They're great teachers and permaculture teaches us this is that, and you know, it's part of my one seed revolution is that when you learn how to do this where you are, mm-hmm. nobody can take that away from you. Mm-hmm. There's no outside entity that's going to come in and usurp your knowledge or be the expert or tell you that you're wrong. I mean, it's up to each of us to learn how to live right where we are with the biological systems that, you know, we're graced to be able to interface with. And so every time you save seeds, they adapt to where you are. You start to create new varieties. Every time you come up with a new technique that works for you, it could work for those right around you, but who knows how far that could travel. You know, that's your techniques. And so there's an incredible opportunity for all of us just to learn how to live where we are with Mm -hmm. what we have and teach it to those around us. That's really the opportunity of our time. And I love what Don Tipping, who owns Siskiyou Seed, says. Once you get back into this flow of energy and education, you'll never be unemployed. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. You'll never need a job because it's just full on, right? And that's what I think both of us have discovered. It's like we woke up 30-some years later going, wow, we're just as busy as we ever were. Right, exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. I do want to do a shout out. I have Karen on the web call and it says she's in Saipan and Saipan is a little island, I believe, off of the coast of China, maybe off of Taiwan, actually off the Philippines. So welcome. Thank you for jumping in and saying hey and listening in. This is a real great conversation for all of us to be in. So I was just going to say global Seed Savers is a new organization. She could probably Google it up. And Sherry Manning, their director, is going to be in the Philippines for the next couple of weeks. But they're doing seed saving courses over there. So maybe there's a play a way for her to bring one of those courses to Saipan if she checks in. So I just wanted to add that. Perfect, perfect. And once again, Bill, I love, love, love working with you and Bell on our amazing projects. We did the Great American Seed Up recently. Go to greatamericanseedup.org, watch the video. It is an amazing, amazing, amazing event. And, you know, I love doing that with you and, you know, having fun with those things. So thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. And, you know, I really deeply appreciate it. And thanks for being willing to chat with me once a month. No problem. Onward and upward. Let's there just go. plant more seeds, big guy. The pleasure is mutual. There you go. All right. Well, we will catch you guys on the flip side. See you next month. Have fun planting seeds. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. 
They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.